Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Before we get started, I have a humble ask. If you're liking the podcast and the stories we bring you, I hope you'll consider sharing your favorite episode with a friend or simply recommending All the Wiser to any podcast lover you know. This goes a long way in helping us to reach and hopefully inspire as many people as possible. Now, on to today's episode with Aaron Stark. Aaron grew up in a violent and drug-fueled home. By the age of 16, he was overweight, depressed, suicidal, a victim of endless bullying, and in his words, worthless and invisible to the world. He decided to end his life and unleash his pain by becoming a mass shooter. Aaron had mapped out the plan to kill dozens in his school cafeteria or the local food court before taking his own life. Today, he shares the act that saved his life and countless others, and why we have to give love to the people we think deserve it the least because they are the ones who need it the most. Aaron is now a 40-year-old husband, father, author, and speaker. In the wake of the Parkland shooting, he shared his past with his kids and wrote an open letter that would reach millions. Aaron's life story provides a unique, important, and hopeful perspective on ending the countless and tragic mass shootings occurring in our country. Here's today's interview with Aaron Stark. Aaron Stark, thank you for being here on All the Wiser. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here. So, Aaron, how would you introduce yourself? Well, I'm a father of four, I'm a happy family man, and I was almost a school shooter. I want to start at the beginning because so much of your story was shaped by your childhood. Tell me about your childhood. Mm, That's a big question. Um, I grew up in a really chaotic, violent, and abused uh, house. So my early childhood was pretty much mainly colored by my father. My, My father was a Vietnam veteran. And he came back extremely mentally disturbed and was, by the time I was born, he was a very violent and evil man. Um, Growing up with him the first five years of my life was basically like living in a Stephen King movie with lots of extreme violence, lots of, and every kind of abuse you could think of, uh, beatings, rapes, um, him smashing people in the head with tire irons in front of me, just massive, massive abuse. And we, I have an older brother who's two years older than I am. And when we were little, 
he, we would spend a lot of time in that time living in battered woman shelters. My mom would get beaten by him and escape and then live in a shelter. And then he would find us and then we would try to escape and move from place to place. Finally got around, away from him uh, when I was about four or five years old. My mom shipped me and my brother off to Oregon for a year as we were running away from him. And then when we got back, she was with my stepdad and it just got worse. It moved from a Stephen King movie to more like Scarface where it was lots of heavy crack cocaine, lots of criminal activity, lots of stealing. They would steal entire delivery trucks to toy stores. So I had for Christmas, I would get like every He-Man toy and every G.I. Joe toy, but it because they'd stole the entire delivery truck. That kind of chaotic life, we were running from place to place a lot because every time that we, that we would get discovered by authorities or so- social workers or someone would poke in, my parents would we would vanish. We'd move. I was a really size sensitive kid. I read comic books a lot and wrote poetry and, and that kind of stuff was just not, not only not encouraged, but kind of attacked and by my family and by people I was around. And I was told I was worthless a lot. I was told that I was useless, that I was just a fat kid that wouldn't be worth anything. First of all, I want to go back and say, I'm so sorry for what you went through as a little boy. You touched on your dad a lot, but what can you share with me about your mom and uh, and who she was? My mom was a survivor. We would travel across the country with just me, her, my brother, and a dog in a van, knowing that no matter where we we're going to go, we we're going to survive. But the only thing we had to protect were each other. And so it was a lot of survivalistic kind of attitudes in public. But she was also a big druggie, lots of drinking, lots of lots of uh, just trying to escape. A lot of it. She was, has extreme depression of her own. She, I think, she has severe PTSD from my from the beatings from my father. And yeah, she she tried a lot, but she had a lot of her own demons that she fought and is still fighting. So, in your TED talk. You said, as a kid, you learned that there was a strange comfort in darkness. What did you mean by saying this? Well, I was, I felt really alone and abused when I was younger. When I found a safety in that kind of dark, depressed kind of persona. Um, It's a weird phenomenon. You, you, you get really, what's a way to, to describe it? I would sit and listen to like Nine Inch Nails and I would sing along these these aggressive lyrics that to me actually had a lot of deep meaning. I kind of listened to that album, uh, The Downward Spiral. That was basically my autobiography. So when I was listening to that, I felt like that's, that was could have been made just for me. Moving forward, what were you like in high school? How did you experience yourself and how do you think the outside world experienced you? I I was bullied a lot in school. I, I looked at myself like the like no one liked me at all. I felt really invisible, actually. I always used to feel literally like when I left a room, nobody would ever even know that I was there to begin with. And I didn't really have any good friends. I had what I would consider disaster groupies, people who just wanted to watch the chaos of my life and watch me flame out. But I didn't really have anybody that was like caring about me. I felt isolated and and invisible. And that's usually how I felt when I was depending on whatever school I was at. 
You also said you had an affinity for poetry and comic books, which I think is really interesting. Why do you think you were drawn to these things? Um, they were escape. Uh, I Comic books were my, and they still are, they're my biggest mental escape. When I'm having stress, especially back then, I would just fall into those superhero worlds. And it was a place that I could get out that no one else in my house had any idea of, but I could just live in those worlds of superheroes and not think about the person getting beaten to a bloody pulp in the other room or the crack cocaine being smoked in the living room. I could sit and listen or, or read about Cyclops and the X-Men fighting Magneto or something, you know, and it, it would be my escape that was just mine. And it, it gave me, it, it became one of my main like centers of of calm in the ocean of chaos that I live in and it it really has helped me over the years I still love superheroes <laughs> I I totally get that and and I'm glad that you had that outlet so you were severely bullied can you share some specific examples of the bullying and incidents that happened to you <laughs> Well, yeah, there would be like going in, sitting in the lunch area of a high school up in Oregon, and I had just moved there a couple of weeks prior. Uh, I was still brand new to the school. I didn't know anybody sitting off to the side, and all of a sudden, a kid walks up and grabs an entire tray of food and dumps it up on top of my head and yells at me that I should be eating more. I, I, I was a fat kid, and I... I took that as just another fat joke that, well, you're, you're fat, here's more food. And he just dumped it right on top of my head. So I had it sitting in the middle of the lunchroom, just covered in, in food. People would walk around me and mind like they're going to shoot harpoons in me like I was a whale. Um, just no, people walking around, just, just hitting me. Kids would like pelt me with balls or th toss me into lockers or hit me with locks on chains and stuff. And I would just come home with these giant bruises all over myself. And my mom would always tell me to fight back, but I just, I didn't, I, I felt useless and worthless. I felt like I couldn't fight back and it, it was bad. What does constant bullying do to a person's soul? <sighs> when you're told you're worthless enough, you're going to believe it. And then you're going to do everything you can to make everybody else agree with it too. And that's what I did. Um, the, it, it crushes you. And, being told that you're worthless, being told that you're terrible, being told that, that you're never going to do anything, that it, it destroys who you are. You start to believe that anybody that's telling you the otherwise is that's the wrong position. Like, and it got to the point that on that earlier question you had about the comfort and calmness and darkness, that that's what that is. You start to adapt that, yeah, I am the worthless one. I am the, the evil one. And as soon as someone comes along and says, oh, no, you're an okay guy. You're like, no, you're wrong. I'm the monster. And if you don't see that, then something's wrong with you. And so here I'll show you more of why I'm the bad guy. And it starts to become its own self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. You were also... You were a cutter, and I know you have scars on your wrist to this day. Why were you doing that? What was that experience for you? It started as a being a small bit of personal emotional control. Um, I felt absolutely out of control with anything in my life. 
it, it's just all about controlling that kind of pain, controlling that kind of self-hatred. I know during this point, there was somebody who deeply impacted your life named Mike, who, who you talk about and, and share when you speak publicly. Can you explain that relationship and why he unknowingly saved your life? Mike is was the polar opposite of me uh, in a lot of ways, but in other ways, he was just like me, and that made us best friends. Um, Mike grew in a very stable household. He lived. I met him because he lived on the opposite end of a block from me one year, and we both loved comic books. I actually met him at the comic book shop, and we immediately fell uh, into deep friendship with each other where we just have, we could talk about anything for hours. We would sit and just read comics, talk about philosophy, comedy, whatever, spend all day long talking with each other. And he became my biggest island of calm in every, and when I was going through the rest of my world was this big tsunami of pain. Wherever I went, he never moved. He's, his family lived in the same house their entire life, and they always had the same phone number. So I had that as the one stable place that anywhere I could go, I could always call Mike, and I would have some place that I could actually be normal. And he, over the years, was the main source for my self-esteem that I, whenever I would feel low and feel like I was worthless, that's the place where I could kind of like recharge my batteries. And he saved my life in the most extreme way when I had gotten to a point with my family where I just couldn't exist with them anymore. I was fighting so bad with them that it, it, even being in the room for a couple seconds with them, it ended up with this gigantic violent fight. And so I was, I, I couldn't live with them anymore. So I'd spent the last couple of months sleeping on the streets, either on the gravel next to my girlfriend's house or in a park behind Casa Bonita. And I was kind of bouncing between those because I didn't really have anywhere else stable. And the only other place that I could sleep in besides those was the shed in the back of Mike's house because they had this tool shed and there was an old chair set in there. They were, they were storing and a bunch of tools and stuff. And he would sneak me down dinner and because his parents wouldn't let me sleep in the house. I was kind of a, I was dirty and smelly and I was kind of a bad influence. So they wouldn't let me sleep in the house, but he would sneak me out food. And so this night, I, one of the most important nights of my life, I was, I had been, couldn't, I'd been fighting with my family earlier on and about 11 o'clock at night, I left the house finally that night because I, I, I had tried to go home and get something. I don't know. I think I went to go get a shirt. Ended up with a giant screaming fight with them again. Left them at 11 o'clock at night. It was pouring down rain. I didn't have anywhere else to go. So I went to Mike's shed. I didn't even tell him I was there that night. And so I go in and it's, again, by this time, like two o'clock in the morning, I'm sleeping and laying in this shed. The roof has holes in the slats. So it's pouring down rain through the roof. I'm sitting in that gray recliner chair and I had a razor blade and I was cutting myself. And the cutting was a bit of control over emotions. You, you, the question you asked just a bit ago, the, when I would cut myself, it would give me a little bit of something that was mine, that it was, it was pain and it hurt, but it was pain that I controlled that no one else had any control over. And I 
that had started as that kind of pain management. But by this point, it was self-destruction. I was sitting in Mike's chair and I was slicing my arm up and it was dripping blood. I, I My arm was covered in blood. I'm pooling on the floor and I'm like, I have to do something. I'm going to die. I'm at the bottom here. There's, I got no, nothing in my life. I feel like I'm going to kill myself. I need to get help. And over the years, social workers had seen, had tried to intervene a couple of times. And every time they did, my family had ran away from them so that we never actually met any social workers. But I had known over the years that they had tried to intervene. So I figured, well, maybe social services could help. Maybe that's who I need to talk to. So I didn't, I figured in the morning I got up out of the shed and walked to his mom's back door and I asked for the phone book. I looked up social services and I made an appointment to go see them that day. And when I arrived, um, they didn't just have me there. They had called my mom and they brought my mom into the social services meeting too. And in the meeting, I sat down, I, I pulled out a bloody razor blade that I had in my pocket. I showed them the fresh cuts all over my arms and told them what was going on, told them that I felt like I was alone and I felt like I was going to kill myself, felt like I was losing my mind. And my mom, through, through uh, her experience of being able to manipulate conversations and get out of uh, trouble, got the social worker to agree to believe that I'm just making it all up, that it was all just a, an act that I was just saying it for attention and that, that I didn't mean any of it. It was all just fake. And the social workers sent me home with them, uh, with my mom. And on the way after we left the social worker's office, my mom turned to me and said the worst sentence I ever heard in my life. She snarled at me and said, next time you should do a better job and I'll buy you the razor blades. And I just lost it. I, lost all sense of i felt my brain just shatter i i felt like i was like nothing and it sent me into the deepest darkest kind of funk i had i had been talking i i had been kind of adapting that dark persona for a while of i'm the evil guy and i'm the mean guy so you leave me alone like 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 trying to wear that kind of coat like a shield this at this point i just fully just ran right into it. Like, yeah, no, I'm the monster. And if you don't believe me, just wait a second. You're going to see it. And I started actively trying to hurt people around me, just insulting every person I was around, trying to destroy every kind of friendship bridge I had, just trying to burn my whole world to the ground. Cause I felt like I was, that that's where I belonged was just nothing. And so I even pushed Mike away. I even told him that I didn't want him in my life anymore. So you are, 17 and clearly the depth you have hit the bottom and as you say you finally snapped i am going to read a portion of the letter you wrote after the parkland shooting reflecting on this time because it paints such a clear picture of where you were at this time and space so you say facing utter hopelessness i snapped i tried to get a gun I wanted to take out as many people as possible, people who had tortured or ignored me, and then I wanted to kill myself. And I had two possible locations mapped out, my school and a mall food court. I wanted to be heard. The abuse I'd suffered had closed me off, and I wanted to feel an emotion other than pain. I wanted to feel, for once, like I was in control, 
even if that meant spreading destruction and death. Explain the details of mapping out this plan. I think we learn about the details in the wake of of mass shootings, researching the active shooter on their computer. But what we don't have the privy of understanding is sort of the mindset. So walk me through the details of mapping it out and sort of making those plans. Um, In the earlier stages of my depression, when I was still, before I was actively looking to attack but I was just in that dark owning darkness as my persona phase. Um, I had, I I talked earlier about, I had disaster groupies where there were, there were friends, but not friends, friends who weren't actually friends of mine just around to watch the the car crash. Well, we were, we were hanging out and having our friend times instead of sitting around talking about the parties we were going to go to or the sports on TV or whatever girl we're going to see, we would sit around and talk about killing people. We would sit around and be like, well, if you were going to kill a lot of people, how would you do it? Well, if I were going to shoot up, if, if you were going to shoot up a school, what would you do? Because, and that was, that was kind of the fiction of the group where it was just that when we're sitting around bullshitting, that's what we bullshit about. And so over, over months and months of talking about that kind of stuff with my comic book mind stories, and always thinking I would, I had a lot of time to like, fantasize in a way about like well if you were going to do an attack you would go to the the mall food court where the there's nobody there how no one would ever stop you you'd have everybody sitting at a table and you just attack and no one would be able to stop you or if you're going to go to a school you'd go to you go in through this door right here and you end up in the food court and one thing that was not a factor whatsoever was any kind of armed guards there were armed multiple armed police officers stationed in my high school at all times and that was not even a factor whatsoever in my planning all that did was change where i was going to enter so when i hear nowadays people talk about how we need to arm teachers and we need to harden the targets it's completely the wrong tactic to take you it's all you're doing is making someone shift the plan you're not stopping anything did you visualize the outcome Yes, yes. I was planning on um, going in there, getting killing as many people as I could, and then dying by suicide or by suicide by cop. I was going to point a gun at a cop. I know there were three things that stopped you from that mass shooting and being an active shooter. Can you share with us those things? First, it was hard for me to get the actual gun. I could get access to a gun theoretically easily. I knew that there was gangbangers that had a gun or that had access to guns. And so I walked up to one of them like, hey, can you give me a gun, preferably where it shoots a lot of bullets? And he's like, yeah, sure. You'd give me three days and uh, give me an ounce of weed. And I'm like, okay, cool. So that wasn't a problem because my druggy family, I just went to my mom's house and stole an ounce off of one of the guys sleeping on her floor. And then I took it to him. He's like, yeah, give me three days. And I, which I assume now, looking back, I didn't think of it then. But looking back, I assume that that was the assault weapons ban that, that takes so long to get a gun. That there was some, or it might have been just some other regulation. Something stopped him, gave, made give him a three day window, which slowed me down. And it, that having that little bit of a buffer was a big portion of it. But the biggest would have been my being saved by Mike. I kindness. I was in that stage of trying to say goodbye basically to everybody. 
I didn't tell him any of what was going on, but he saw that I was in a worse spot than I had ever been in before. And he did the most impactful thing ever to me and just treat me like a person and sat me down and was like, dude, it's okay. These things you're feeling, the way that you're feeling, you're not a monster. You're, you're okay. You're, the, the pain that you're going through with your family, the pain you're going through in your world, th- no one can expect you to be sleeping in a, in a shed and eating out of a dumpster and be happy about it. Like you're not, you're, you're not broken. You're not a monster. You're just a, you're a good kid going through a terrible existence. And that it was such a shift from every other person in my world that was, that was, that would, and the way they acted with me, people either treated me like I was a project and like I was broken, like, like, Oh, you're depressed. And here's something we can do to fix you. Or here's, here's a program we need to get you in. And it just felt like I was just a number and completely depersonalized or that I was just a monster and I was just evil and I should be outcast. And both of those were just reaffirming my own personal opinion that I was not human. I didn't feel human at all. I felt completely alien, completely outside of anything. And to have Mike just not even see any of that and instead just look at me like, dude, you're you're just a regular guy. You're okay. You're my friend. Like sit down, have a meal, watch a TV, go have a shower. It it will be okay. You just don't do anything. You're not going to regret. Just stay here. And it saved my life. And I never went to go get the gun and spent the next couple days with him. And I, I really hear you and that act of kindness and really just being seen and heard how powerful that was for you. There was another act of kindness by someone that saved your life. Can you share that with me? So he had this friend, Amber, and we'd go over to hang out at Amber's house every now and then. But I was coming up on my 19th birthday and I was actually planning on killing myself. I had stolen a bunch of prescription drugs and cocaine from my mom, and I was planning on taking it all and killing myself at the end of the night in the field behind Casa Bonita. And during the day, I went over to Mike's house. And so since the first time I was depressed, everybody, uh, he kind of did like a mini intervention. This time I was trying to do my best to not have anybody notice what was happening. So I was trying to act completely normal. And so, um, he's like, okay, well, we're going to go over to, to Amber's house today. And I'm like, okay, cool. Thinking I'm, we're going to go over there, watch a movie or something. Then I'm going to go back to the field and I'm going to end my life. And so we get there and it wasn't that at all. Actually, it was a surprise birthday party for me. And so when I show up and there are like 14 people there and she had baked a blueberry peach pie. And so all these people there to, for love for me, instead of me going home and killing myself, I spent the weekend with people that loved me. And that was the last time I ever tried to commit suicide. Is Mike still in your life today? Absolutely. He's my best friend. He's uncle to my kids. Um, he is, he, he has legitimately saved my life more times than I could count on both hands. It's, 
he is responsible for more positive in my life than just about any other human on the planet. He's the only person in the world that if he got in an argument with my wife and call her a name, I'd be like, well, what did you do to make him upset? <laughs> I'm so grateful that, that you have him and he was yeah. there for you during that time. So this letter you wrote, call it an open letter that, that really went viral, was in the wake of Parkland shooting mm-hmm. when a 19-year-old shot and killed 17 people. So I want to talk about your impetus and why you decided to write that letter. But I was also curious how you experienced, and it's deeply, deeply un- unfortunate that this is a common thing, but it is. How do you experience watching the news after a wake of a mass shooting? Hmm. I, it always, always, always makes me feel like, well, dang, that could have been me. And it's still now 30 years after all the the pain that I was going through, it still hits that, like I, that I understand at least a portion of where that kid's coming from, you know, I know. Why did you decide to write that letter in the wake of Parkland? Well, it was a spur of the moment decision, actually. Um, we were talking, I was having one of those tearful discussions with my wife and my oldest daughter about, it was it was literally the day after Parkland, we're watching the news and we're seeing all the tragedy and we're having one of those crying discussions where my, my wife and my daughter are all crying about how can this happen? How could someone ever get to that point? And how could, what could you ever do to make you feel like you want to hurt so many people? And I left that conversation. I went to the back of the house and I wrote, that post on Facebook. And because I felt that that was, I I honestly just wrote it for them just because to kind of get it all out without having me stutter through it, without having to like actually talk about it, just, just write it out. And then when I, when I got out of the, I, I was actually in the bathroom and wrote it. When I got out of the bathroom, I came out and they were crying, reading it. And because my wife knew about 60% of my past, my daughter knew about 20% of my past. And so we had a good, long, deep discussion where I just fully came out with everything and just told them, this is my history and this is who I am. And thankfully they accepted me and they didn't judge me at all. And they, they just, my, my daughter's very intrigued and very wants to learn everything about all of my past and learn everything about me. And I just, I open up everything. Well, it sounds like you have, uh, an amazing family. It's my, my, my prize achievement in my whole life is that my 18 year old daughter tells everybody I'm her best friend. I've got to work on that. That's life goals for me as my children are young. So I'm going to, I'm going to aim for that. Well, when I was that, um, when I was that age at 17, my mom told me the worst sentence in my life that now I'm telling others 30 years later, <laughs> my, my daughter tells everybody I'm her best friend. So. Well, that is that is how the power of a generation and can change in the best of ways. And, and that family legacy is no longer the story. So this Facebook post, this, this letter that you wrote that was so widely shared, what are some of the things that people said? And if you have examples of the types of people that reached out and what they shared with you? Oh, my God. Uh, it's been... 
thousands upon thousands of responses from all over the world. I, I had no idea of the amount of outpouring of support that I would get, but not just support. So it's, I, I got a ton of responses from just, oh my God, that's great. I can't believe your story. But th most of them are actually, oh my God, that's great. And by the way, here's my diary and here's everything that ever happened to me. And so I get things like a, a guy in Pakistan who wrote me that he couldn't talk about his bullying because they would actually kill him. So he sent me like nine paragraphs about his pain. And I got, there's a girl in Minnesota who just sent me a text that says, I'm not going to tell you why, but you're the reason I'm breathing today. And it's all over the world, like literally every continent except for, for Antarctica, um, Sweden, Australia, New Zealand, Norway, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, like everywhere, every state, Brazil, and they're all various stories of this similar kind of pain. The, it, it's all, I, I, I discovered right away that there's a this undercurrent of, of feeling alone and worthless that we almost all of us seem to have. And if you're willing to talk about it, people will open up and tell you everything about themselves. Just open up. People are just crying out for someone to just please listen. And we just need to start listening. There's so many people that are, that are talking about it. That the, the outpouring of response has just been amazing. It just blows me away. I started a group out of it, actually, because I got so many, so much responses. I started a Facebook group called You Are Not Alone that is now up to almost 1,500 members that are all from all over the world of people who can share their stories of pain and survival and what they've gone through without any judgment or any attacking. And it's turned into this like self-perpetuating positivity machine that on its own has stopped six suicides, three potential attacks, and we helped a woman get out of white nationalism. Wow, what a life achievement. That's I, I didn't know that until you shared it. Congratulations. That's that's incredible. Yeah, it's it's insane. <laughs> in, insane in the in the best of ways. Yeah. So, so we've obviously talked in such detail in your bravery of sharing about your deep, deep pain in life. How did you heal and learn to love yourself? <sighs> That took a long time. Um, took me about 15 years of solid personal effort. Of The biggest step that I personally took was acknowledgement, where I went through the people that hurt me over the years and confronted them, not in an accusatory way, not to say that you did this so you need to pay, or you did this and you hurt me so you need to, to suffer, but just to acknowledge, be like, I know this is what happened. This is the reality that I'm living in, and our relationship is fundamentally altered forever because of it. And that process for myself was so cathartic, and so it allowed me to release so many of those demons that it it, it made me believe in one of my core personal philosophies, which is the way out is through. the 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 best way to get through something is to just get through it. And sometimes it's going to hurt a lot to go, to go through it, but it's much better to go through it than go around it. And so that, that's, that's how I've been dealing with it. Just, just the way out is through. What today, all these years later, from the perspective where you sit in life now, which is so unique, 
What do you think needs to be done to prevent mass shootings from happening? I think the first thing we need to do is start listening to the outcasts. Listen to the people who feel like they're invisible. Um, there's a really weird phenomenon. Okay, so when I was being bullied and going from school to school, if I were to hit a school and there was a kid that bullied me, he'd probably have four or five friends that would also bully me on his side. But on the other side, I might have four or five people that would protect me. But like, no, you're okay. So it kind of balance itself out. And that was just a general in any given school that I would go to. Nowadays, we have the internet where instead of having that, you have the kid who bullies you, and then they have an entire subculture that is not only cheering them on that that's a great way to bully, but here's tips on how to be a better bully. Here's tips on how to be even more hurtful. And you, it becomes its own positive reinforcement through negative means. And when these kids are just looking for that positive reinforcement, they, I, was just, I was looking for positive reinforcement too, but I was looking for people to, to reaffirm my opinion that I was a monster. You know, and that's what these kids are doing. The, the, these, these kids, they, the kids in these troll groups, they want you to, they want to be the, the, the evil one because that's what their friends say. That's the good thing to be. So we need to figure out a way to listen to those kids in a way that gives them another outlet beyond being negative to feel that same sense of positive belonging. That and. I know you, um, you, you touched on a sort of where, and I think you're so right that the scale scaling of bullying, because there's so much more, the scaling of it, because there's so much more possibility and not only possibility, but to publicly do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so what would you say, what would you say to a kid, a 17-year-old kid, let's go back to that moment in time, who's on the receiving end of that bullying and has reached their own brink? I would say just keep going. Just keep going and don't give up. That it seems like in the middle of that forest, like there's no way out. And that there's that when you're in that dark, it can feel so oppressive and can feel so isolating. And you can feel absolutely alone. But if you just keep moving, you will eventually make it out. The only, the only thing constant in life is change. The only thing absolutely certain is that tomorrow is going to be different than today. It might not be better. It might not be worse. But it is going to be different than today. And if we just keep on going, eventually our situation will shift. And it's hard to see the movement while you're actually doing it. You know, you move one step today, you don't feel like you're going anywhere. You move one more step tomorrow, you still don't feel like you're going anywhere. The next day you move two steps. You moved a little bit. You look back, you actually have moved four steps. You just didn't realize how far you were going. And I think that people get lost in their own sense of pain so much. And it's, it's so overwhelming sometimes all the negativity in the world and all the, the hate in, in our culture. And there's, it can be so much that we can give up. And that's the worst thing you can do is give up. Just keep going. We have to give love to people we think deserve it the least because they need it the most. And sometimes that person is ourself. I think you, and in a sense, and this is what you shared in this interview and, and what you've shared other places, is that, yes, there was the access to gun in the waiting period, but it was also kindness and acts of love that saved you and saved 
the potential victims and, and families that would lose their life and their loved ones. So as far as, and I, I think as a parent, I've heard about not being a bully. You can be a bystander or an upstander. Not participating is one thing that you can observe and not participate. But to be an upstander. So kids who are observing this, observing somebody in deep pain and despair on the receiving end of bullying, what would your message be to those kids? Because I think they hold power in all of this, just like Mike and everyone who was there at your birthday had power in your life. I would say give love even when you feel like it's being pushed away. That kid who's being abused, when you try, when you go over there and you try to be the nice one to him and you try to try to just treat him like you're, he's a person and you try to try to be kind and you try to just be his friend, he might shove you away. He might act completely aggressive towards you. He might think that you're being mean because of it. Keep trying. Be the one constant spot that's just going to keep liking him even when he pushes you away because eventually he'll see it because you have to get through the fact that everybody else in his world has taught him that anybody that likes him is lying. Anybody that says that he's good is wrong. You have to show that that's, that's not the truth. You have to fight through that. The only way you can do that is with consistency. Just keep being the person that's going to be there for them. When, when, if, when I, when I shove you away, stay there for me. When, when I, when you say that you're here, actually be here when I need you. Like, don't, don't push me away when I'm crying. Don't, don't shove me when I'm already down. And that, those kinds of that, just be consistent. Be the one that when the rest of the world is falling apart, be that one spot that is still there and still likes them. Be the one that's going to sit next to them and, and eat with them when they smell like feces and are covered in filth and are just got done sleeping in a literal dumpster. Sit next to them and treat them like a regular person and you'll save their life. What is your position on gun control and access to guns in this country? I think that we have too much access to guns in this country, but I think that if you are a licensed adult and you're trained and you are a registered gun owner, then own what you want. If, 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 if you are, have followed the rules and regulations, own what you will. I just think that there has to be a way we can keep guns out of the hands of someone who was like I was 25 years ago. There has to be some middle ground where we can find that there's no reason why we need to have high capacity, high volume weaponry. There's no reason to have that in the hands of civilians. You know, there's no reason why we can't find a middle ground where if you, you want to own that gun, get trained, licensed and do it. But there's there has to be something in the middle. You know, if when we're driving our cars, we have to have a license for it. We have to have taken a class for that license. We have to have insurance for that. And then at any time driving that car, cop can stop us, investigate whether we have said license. And if we don't, the car is taken away. Why can't we have something similar for a gun? Seems pretty reasonable when we have something like that, that we can have a license that we can actually check and verify. You know, that does, doesn't seem that unreasonable to me. What do you hope people come to understand after listening to this interview? That depression has a face, that it's almost universal, that at the base of it, there's no real difference from the pain that I was feeling and the pain that, say, a bulimic model who's, who throws up before her models or 
photo shoots feels. There's no difference between that pain at all. That it's all a sense of isolation, worthlessness, and loneliness that we feel. And if we can figure out a way to treat each other like people and to show each other that we actually do matter, then maybe we can find a way to move past this morass that we seem to be in as a society and try to heal the rift that seems to be driving us apart. One of the most powerful things ever out of all the responses that I've gotten is the complete bipartisan nature of it. I get I get the same positive response from gun supporters and gun uh, gun opponents, from Trump supporters, from uh, liberals, from the atheists and and devout religious, from every walk of life, every denomination. At the base of it, everybody can see that you have to treat people like human, like people. You know, it's it's this sense of pain and isolation goes through everything. And it's sad that that might be the one thing that connects us, but it does. And if we can see that, then maybe we can stop this cold civil war we have brewing. Maybe we can fix a lot more than just this problem. So thank you for so articulately and honestly answering all these questions and sharing your story with us today. We end the interview on All the Wiser with something that's uh, lighthearted called Rapid Fire. <clears throat> so I'm going to share, um, open the sentence or, or ask you a question, and then you tell me whatever comes to mind. All right. Cool. All right. Favorite food? Mm, pickles. Favorite song? Mm, Leaving Hope by Nine Inch Nails. The thing I love most about myself? My quick wit. Something I suck at. Anything physical. (laughs) (laughs) What I wish I knew when I was 20. How to drive. I still don't know how to drive. I wish I knew that when I was 40. (laughs) Um, My favorite quote? In order to be experienced, you must experience. In 10 years, I hope to be. 10 years older. 10 years wiser. Tell us about your your life and where you are today. I am in the best spot I've ever been in in my life. I am now, I, before all of this, I was a stay-at-home dad just sitting around watching TV with my kids all day. And now I'm spending every waking hour trying to spread positivity and advocate for mental health um, as much as possible. I fly around the country giving motivational speeches. I, um, I spoke at my kid's school last month to 500 students for the psychology department. Um, I just try to connect with as many people as possible to show that we have to give love to people who we feel deserve it the least because they need it the most. And uh, next Wednesday, I'm flying out to Jackson, Mississippi to go speak at a nationwide school nurses conference to 4,000 school nurses. So it's changed my world entirely. And and I never in a million years imagined it would ever happen. That's amazing. So you talked about your life-saving Facebook group. Can you share the name and anywhere else we can find and follow you on social media? Absolutely. The name of my Facebook group is You Are Not Alone. It's all one word, but the words are capitalized. So You Are Not Alone. Um, it is 
uh, again, it's like 1500 members strong. Please come join us all about positivity, love and support. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at Stark author or at Stark dad, 1313. Um, you can also see me on YouTube, uh, Aaron Stark. So yeah, come find me on those. Come find me on Facebook. If you, if you follow me on Facebook, that's where I do most of my work and I, I like to interact with everybody. So come find me on there. I'd love to talk to you. Thank you, Aaron. You are amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Today's interview supports Samaritan House Denver. As you heard in the interview, growing up, Aaron was often homeless and hopeless. He chose to support Samaritan House Denver because they offer sufficient food and clothing and the ability to earn a living wage and affordable housing to those in need. You can learn more about their work at samhousedenver.org. That's samhousedenver.org. Please remember to rate, review, or recommend the podcast if you are liking the stories we bring you each episode. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Juan Diego from Harmonix, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.